Hello, everybody. It's Sunday. It's Easter Sunday, as a matter of fact. And I'm happy to be here. Had a pretty good week. Another week inside my house. I actually got to go to the office this week, and it, it was like a field trip. Seriously. I mean, there was not a lot of people there. You know, most of the company is working from home. Uh, but yeah, there was, there were a few people wandering around and, and people in the warehouse were there and, uh, had a couple meetings and things we had to get done for, uh, you know, projects over the next few months, but it was exciting just to get back to the office. And I'm not sure if it's the same for a lot of you, but, you know, spend a lot of time in the office and I travel quite a bit too, but you get kind of, um, just in this trance of days in the office and you spend, I spend so much time there that it's, it's not really that exciting to roll into the office at six 30 in the morning every day, like I normally do. Um, but pulling in there this week, I was pumped, uh, just a different change of scenery and getting back to some sense of normalcy really did me a lot of good. So I am in i I'm in a great mood and excited to talk about some dirt bikes and new things that I've heard this week. A lot of the same things that I really haven't heard change, but we're going to get into all of it. So again, I want to thank you all for tuning into the podcast. Uh, this is one of the things that's kind of kept me going and kept me on a, an even keel. And uh, yeah, we don't have any racing yet, but yeah, I feel like it's getting a little closer. Uh, I don't know how we're going to get there. You know, you if you watch one news program and then flip channels to the other, it's a completely different narrative and timeline and expectations. So we're just going to have to see how that all goes. Uh, I do want to thank the sponsors that make this podcast possible. They have really stuck behind me and I I owe them a debt of gratitude because things are not easy for anybody right now. Uh, Leading off with Pirelli Tires, first on board, uh, Josh Whitmire and guys over there. And there's kind of a uh, recurring theme with these sponsors from the people I've talked to more people out riding right now than ever. Uh, my buddy, Paul Parabinos was riding yesterday and, and he said in California on the freeway, all he saw were dirt bikes and, and pickup trucks with bikes and quads and UTVs and stuff everywhere. So that's a great sign for our industry. You know, hopefully the stimulus package keeps money in people's pockets and keeps them employed so we can continue on with, uh, you know, the power sports industry that we all love. Um, also want to thank Blenzel oils. I'm going to talk about them a little bit in our email questions later, but David and the guys over there, uh, they are running a promo right now. If you use the promo code free T on checkout, you will get a free t-shirt. So that's pretty cool. If you buy a case of oil, you get a free t-shirt, pretty good deal over there. Um, you know, I I've seen more people out riding two strokes than ever before, uh, which maybe just as me paying attention, but I think it's a great time for people to be fixing up their old bikes and taking them out and riding them. So that's a perfect insertion for Blenzol into your normal rotation of uh, lubricant. So go check them out. Uh, I want to thank Works Connection. Same kind of thing, right? If you're fixing your bike up, getting ready to ride, maybe maybe you're in an area where the weather's just breaking, like it is for me in Idaho. Today, it's a little cooler today, but the last few days have been like 70, which is... Seriously, you don't even know how awesome and how long awaited that is for us um, to get into temperatures that you're not just suffering to go do the things you want. So go uh, go check out WorksConnection.com to, uh, yeah, get your bike ready to go rip. I uh, also want to thank Plum Creek Funding. I've talked to a lot of people that have used Zach Morris's help 
And that's been really cool. Um, Zach is a super nice guy. He's a moto guy. He just happens to make his specialty in the, uh, you know, home mortgage and, and refinance, uh, area. So that's a big help for us because we can use his advice. If you've been watching any of the stuff going on with the, the rates and what the federal reserve is doing and what they're doing with interest rates, it's chaos right now. And all of that stuff has serious implications on how we can borrow, uh, a lot of these big mortgage companies are, you know, going up and down with how all of this stuff relates to them. So if you have questions on maybe how that affects you, uh, another thing I've seen too, is all the forbearance, uh, allowances that are out there and, and he can help you answer those questions is, are you allowed to defer your payments? If you, if you were furloughed or laid off, is there any help for you in not having to make your mortgage payment this month? So reach out to Zach, 720-212-4685. I've talked to quite a few people who are in the process of refinancing because you can get a rate at, you know, in the low threes right now. And for most of America, that's lower than you're paying. Uh, So please reach out to Zach if you have any questions. Uh, I just know him and the way he operates and he's definitely there to help. Also, uh, Premier Vapor Blasting. One of those things, same old thing. If you're, you got that two stroke and you're going to get it out ready to ride, maybe it's beat up, right? Maybe it's 15 years old and it's not looking so hot. Send those parts off to premier vapor blasting and they will make them look like new. Go on their Instagram and check out the results. There's, there's proof right there of if you send a product to them and what it comes back looking to you like. So go to premier vapor blasting of Georgia and uh, see what it's all about. It's been a, a revelation for me just to see what they're capable of. And if you mention the industry seating podcast, you get 25% off. So that's a hell of a deal. Uh, please go visit those guys and support local business because trust me, everybody needs it right now. Also, last but not least is Fly Racing and they have a 10% off uh, nationwide special going. Special going. And obviously it's up to retailers to honor that, but we normally don't allow it. So that's the big difference. And we also have an Instagram giveaway going on. So check out at flyracingusa.com for more details on that. And actually made a post today on the Fly Racing USA Instagram uh, with a little bit of explanation there. So getting into a little bit of the the body of this podcast. Um, so what news do we have? Do we have any? That is the big question because it seems like it's just been kind of slow out there, right? We're all just plodding through day after day and some of us are working from home. Some of us may be still going into the office like nothing's nothing's changed. Some of us are furloughed. I know some of my coworkers are and a lot of my friends in the, in the industry are furloughed and they're kind of wondering what to do with their daily life right now. So a lot of change out there, a lot of uncertainty for everything, for racing, for businesses, for families. Um, you know, lots of parents are out there trying to figure out how to homeschool their kids, right? They, they have not been allowed to take them to school and that creates an incredible burden on them trying to do their, na- their daily work plus uh, keep their, you know, their children learning and on, on schedule to Uh, be ready for the next school year when it starts and just all kinds of complications from all of that. So I've been trying to keep tabs on how this all relates to our sport and if there's been any significant changes. And really the biggest news that I've heard was that they're going to really have to pay attention to what happens with the May guideline. And that's a roundabout way to say it. 
but what it sounds like is if the social distancing guidelines and we are not in a a better position, say on May 1, where some of these restrictions are lifted, some of the gathering limits are lifted, you know, when the end of this uh, guideline ends on April 30th, I think it's going to be really challenging to go racing in the middle of June. And that, that's what I'm hearing. Um, nothing official, of course, but that's, that's the conversations that are being had is if they push those guidelines back into mid-April or later, or I'm sorry, mid-May or later, expecting big crowds and a motocross race to happen in mid-June becomes very problematic. Now, a lot of you are, have been watching the news and watching ESPN and watching these things and saying, oh man, these, these sports are made kicking back off and, and baseball is completely reconfiguring their entire sport to try to have this season happen. And how can, how can motocross and supercross follow that same path? In my opinion, it technically can't, especially motocross. And the, the biggest difference comes in the, the television contract revenue. Now, for baseball, basketball, football, soccer, et cetera, right? Pick your big sports. They have a completely different business model where they can rely on these massive television revenue packages. And sure, they will lose money not selling tickets to fans every weekend there's or every day for baseball. There's no doubt about that, and that's just a, a hard fact. Football, the same thing. College football, NFL, NBA, there's huge dollars in in ticket sales, okay? We can't discount that. But for motocross and supercross, especially motocross, that is where the money comes from. They they don't have this huge television package to create revenue. That just does not exist. Our sport is not big enough for, you know, the powers that be to go to NBC Sports and demand all this money. They we don't have enough people watching. And we we know that, right? It's an enthusiast-driven sport. And we don't have the massive crowds watching it on television like an NFL Sunday. It's an unfortunate truth of our sport. So for them to go racing at, let's say, WW Ranch in June with no fans doesn't work. They, they can't afford, nobody can afford to do that. They can't afford to hold the race. Uh, there just is not enough money in the sport to go racing in that fashion. So... That's the real difference and where the real problem comes in is we can't really follow this same path that, say, Major League Baseball could, where they could cram everyone into all these teams into one city like Phoenix, which they're planning on doing, and play baseball games there and just have television foot the bill. That's not going to work. Uh, we, we just don't have enough money in our, in our contracts with television to pull that off. So that's where really where it comes down to is – if we can't have fans at the races, especially motocross races for now, because we have a long way till supercross to go, I don't think they're going to be able to run the races on schedule. So then where does that lead us? That's a big question. Do they start pushing races further back? Do they start canceling more races? I don't know. They're going to have to make really hard decisions because they're also going to be competing for available dates with supercross. And the last thing this sport needs is for push to come to shove and teams and riders have to choose between two different series on the same date. I don't think we're going to get to that stage. I really don't. But anything could be possible right now, right? I, I think that both series are up against it with their sponsors and their contract money 
that they need to fulfill obligations. So they need to go racing. But if the series gets pushed back to where we can't gather in mass until let's say September, October, what do we do? Right. I have already explained that motocross can't go racing without fans. And, and I do not believe that supercross is willing to absorb that financial responsibility either. I don't know that they can or can't, but I don't think they're willing to, you know, that if they're going to hold seven rounds, I don't think supercross is going to bite the bullet and rent these, these venues and fly in 250 people to operate the race and et cetera, et cetera, pay purse and all that stuff without having fans in the stands to offset that cost. I don't think they're going to do that. So if the series can't start with fans until September, and I'm, I'm just throwing a month out there, what does that mean for both series? Uh, I think they're going to have to get together and, and really compromise with each other for the good of the sport. I just don't know what that looks like. And for everybody's benefit, let's just hope we don't get to that point. Let's hope that May brings warmer weather and an ease of restrictions. You know, I know there are going to be some out there listening and saying, we can't do that. Everyone's going to get sick. And and maybe you're right. I'm not a doctor, nor do I pretend to be, but I'm just hoping for the most optimistic of outcomes for the good of our sport. Uh, I don't know where that will go with, uh, you know, the, the medical outlook. Again, I'm not here to make predictions. I'm just telling you what the likely outcomes are if we can do this or we can do that. So let's just hope that May brings a little bit of a, an ease or a rollback of some of those restrictions and we can stay on schedule because if we can't, it's going to turn everything into a tailspin and it's going to be really difficult for everyone down, down the stretch here. So uh, that's really what I've heard is this May, May 1 guideline will be very critical to the current motocross schedule. Supercross, I don't think there's really been any change yet. I think they're still planning on a mid to late September startup. That's been the plan for, I'm going to say a couple weeks. And I think they're still looking at doing that. Uh, in the interim, they've been trying to lock down venues to see where's possible. And in previous podcasts, I've mentioned that likely scenarios would be St. Louis, uh, possibly San Diego, possibly the venue in Carson, California. And I don't know the name of it. Uh, it used to be the Home Depot Center, but I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, but think of venues that do not house or are not homes to major sports, right? Uh, the Even soccer, you have to think about major league soccer. Some of these stadiums that don't have a professional team in them every day, St. Louis is obviously one and Qualcomm is one. Those, are, those jump off the page to me just availability-wise. But we also have to think about music concerts and any other possible, you know, uh, conflict that we could have that these would have had over the summer because once people are allowed to gather again, everybody is going to be trying to book those venues and make up for postponed dates. So that's what Feld is battling also. But let's just hope we can go racing, supercross racing in September and October, and it doesn't get pushed further and further back. Now, I've been asked a couple times, do I think that racing could even go past that, right? Could we race into November and December? Yes is the short answer, but I think it's going to be very problematic and they're going to get extreme pushback from the riders and teams. If the series goes into November and an extreme case into December contracts will all have to be changed again, right? Which is not a huge deal, 
but it is a big deal with everybody switching teams and switching bikes and switching sponsors and negotiations and everything having to switch over. And these guys being ready to go racing again on a completely new team bike scenario in January, it's not impossible. I want to be upfront and say that, uh, but it is something we will have never seen before in our sport. And it will create a lot of challenges and a lot of negative feedback. And I think you'll have teams and riders, you know, screaming about it. That doesn't mean we can't still do it. Um, it just going to have, it's going to create a lot of issues that we'd have to work through. And you're going to see a lot of teams and riders very unprepared and just cramming testing in, in late December, you know, probably riding on Christmas and doing all kinds of things because, you know, all these things we've usually had two or three months to sort through having, if, if we raced into December, you're talking about only having a few weeks to sort all that out. Uh, it, it would just be a, a nightmare logistically, but again, anything is possible at this point, because I think one thing we've learned, if you've listened to any of the interviews is that the series, both series are going to try to do everything they can to get as many races in as they can because there's just so much contractually riding on it. So that, that's kind of where we stand. We're still in a holding pattern, but really pay attention to the May guidelines and uh, state by state who is allowing people to gather and win because that's what everything is going to hinge on. Okay, time to switch gears. Let's get into story time. Have one story, and then we're going to do some, uh, some email questions. Okay, so I teased this a little bit last week, and... The story I have for today is from 2008, which, gosh, getting old. But if you guys remember, Chad Reed won the 250 Supercross title, which was the big bike back then. And uh, Jason Lawrence won the West Coast Supercross Championship on, I guess he was on a 250F, but it was the, I don't even know if it was a lights class then. We've been through some changes, but he was on the smaller bike, right? So wild times back then, right? A a different deal. There was money in the sport everywhere and just a different feel. We, you know, we were on the precipice of the, uh, the economic meltdown with the housing crisis. And side note, I've been watching a ton of documentaries. If you follow me on Twitter, you've seen that, but most of these things were happening right around this time. And if you've watched, you see March was a, a really, pivotal time for the the housing market kind of falling apart and these big uh, investment banks really about to come apart and uh, all the stupid things they were doing, selling uh, these CDOs and stuff, but getting off on a different tangent there. But, you know, this Supercross ending was the beginning of May. So we were living through what was about to go down. And it's funny in these documentaries, they show these investment bankers that are about, that are on the cliff about to jump off, you know, uh, figuratively watching people walk around that have no idea what's about to hit them. They have no idea of the, the financial crisis and impact that's about to, you know, land on everybody's laps. And that was definitely the case for us. I can remember this 2008, uh, Vegas weekend, seriously, like it was yesterday. I remember it so vividly. And, you know, I've talked about it a little bit. I was going in trying to win this, uh, top privateer bonus and I had a really good handle on it. I basically just needed to finish the race is all I needed to do. And actually I needed to beat 
Eric Sorby and Troy Adams were two of the guys that I was, uh, was battling for it. And I didn't have a ton of pressure because I really, as long as I qualified and didn't do anything stupid. And I think Sorby had to get like, he would have to get like seventh place if I didn't qualify for me to get past. So I wasn't really that nervous, but I remember we were there all week and the more I remember, the more details I remember, we drove or actually were passengers in the Butler Brothers MX semi-trailer from Seattle. We left Seattle on Sunday morning and we rode in the back all the way to Vegas. So it was myself, Paul Parabinos, Dan Truman, and my mechanic, Jared, uh, the next year actually is my mechanic, all rode in the back and we had we had playstations and xboxes and television and movies and all kinds of stuff in the lounge and we set all these beds up and it was a pretty sweet setup we had you know food and snacks and all kinds of stuff so we were playing video games and watching movies the whole way and i remember we stopped to uh take a break in boise idaho went to a gas station i know exactly where we were and it's so funny because it was the the only time before I moved here that I'd ever been to Boise, Idaho in my entire life. And I remember getting out of the back of the trailer and kind of looking around and looking at the mountains. I'm like, man, this place is pretty wild. I, I had no idea. And to think that, you know, for a little over four years later, uh, maybe five, I would be moving to Boise. I just would have never said, guessed in a million years that that would be the case. Uh, be just think back on your perspective then. And, uh, so anyway, we cruised down into Vegas. We got there Monday night and, uh, we, I think we went straight into the casino and started gambling for a little bit. And I didn't drink it really at all, especially not leading up to a a big race like that. But, uh, all my friends, you know, Paul and all the mechanics were all having a good time. Ended up going riding with Steve Mathis and keep in mind, this is before Pulp MX was a thing, right? So it was just me and Steve buddies going riding. We went out to this track called Sandy Valley and we're motoring down. I rode my race bike a little bit, really just to stay sharp on Thursday. And we had a good time. And, um, I think Steve had a, a KX 450 that he was on at the time. And really we just kind of hung out that week. I, I mean, if you know anything about how this works, you know, you really can't accomplish anything going out and doing all this training, you know, in the, before the last race of the season, and we were only going to race a limited outdoor schedule and I wasn't starting until June. So I had plenty of time. I, I was not in some serious training mode, you know, I was just kind of maintenance, but anyway, go through the week, have a good time, relax in Vegas, spend some time at the pool. And we go into the weekend and obviously for, for Chad Reed, it's serious pressure. Forget about my pressure. You know, I was, I was going to make 15 grand. Chad had the Supercross championship on the line and Chad and I were super tight had gone through a lot that season, which I talked about on the, on last week's podcast, but I was way more nervous for him than I was for me. You know, he was in a good position. He, he had a decent points lead on Kevin Windham, but if, if things went completely wrong, he could have lost the title. Like if he, his bike broke or he had a big crash or whatever, right. Any, any DNF, he loses the title. So we go through the race. Uh, I qualify, which was a big relief, pretty easily, no big deal. And so I, I'm pretty confident. Like all I got to do is just not crash. Don't take huge chances and you're going to be fine. I don't even know if Sorby qualified. Maybe he did. I think he did actually, 
but I wasn't really stressing. He was in no condition. There's no way he was going to get seventh or eighth. He wasn't, he wasn't fit enough to do that. There was just not possible. So I wasn't really worried about it, but I remember sitting on the line for the main event and J law had won the title and we were all like kind of wondering like what kind of effort would he put in for the shootout? Because that's always the question, right? These guys that just win the championship, do they even care about the shootout that goes on after? Because there was big money on the line. If you won the shootout, you know, I remember Suzuki for their, uh, the 250 guys were 125 back in the day. They would get double their, their win bonus if they won the shootout. Right. So a guy like Davey Millsaps, I remember it was a huge deal for him. Forget about the series or the race, whatever he wanted to win the shootout because it was, you know, their, his win bonus from Suzuki was 35,000. And if he won the shootout, it was 70,000. So that's a, obviously a huge, uh, incentive to go out and, and really put it on the line for that, that shootout race. Well, for J law, he probably just won, you know, 500, 800,000, who knows, right? A lot of money when you're counting about all in and then, uh, contract accelerators for the next season and negotiating power and all that. He made a lot of money just in that, uh, winning the, the series. So in the shootout, we're sitting on the line laughing because he literally does like two laps, does like huge whips over the triples and then just like wheelies his way out of the stadium and, and doesn't even finish. Right. Just does like two laps and he's out of there. So we're laughing and kind of like nervous laughter because, you know, Chad's super nervous and I'm nervous, but we knew he was headed straight to the, to the after party that we were all hoping we would be in the mood to go to. So anyway, main event goes on and I talked about this last week a little bit, but Chad wins the race, puts in this just incredible main event performance, passing Wyndham and wins in the fashion that you would hope to. I think I got 12th and I didn't ride bad. I wasn't taking huge chances. I was just kind of putting in my laps, but I rode okay. And, uh, obviously all celebrating down on the podium and, uh, you know, I was pumped for myself and, and pumped for Chad. So we all make our way out of the stadium finally. And I get back to the hotel. I think we're staying at the hard rock and, um, yeah, shower and, and having drinks while we're getting ready. And it's just full celebration mode, right? You don't get many of those in the season, but Saturday night after Vegas Supercross was certainly one of those. So the party was at the Palms and yeah, the Palms has kind of undergone changes, right? It was really popular at this time, this 2008 time. It was turning into the place to be. And then it really went downhill and it's kind of made a comeback with uh, tall Cooperman and a few guys that I, I know being involved over there. But at the time it was, it was popping, right? It was a place to be. And you remember uh, real world was there and all kinds of stuff. So we go to this suite and uh, I just remember Chad telling me like this, this is where it's at. This is where we're going. I'm like, all right, I'll be there. So I, I don't, I don't even remember who I went with, but I get there and, um, Chad has to come get me and let me in or whatever, but it's, I'm trying to remember who actually threw the, the party. I know it was J law's room. So I'm assuming he was probably on the hook for it, but I know monster was a sponsor and tied to it somehow. And, uh, but it, it was seriously the who's who of factory riders and, just anybody in the industry you would think of that would be invited to a, this party. Right. So I, I go in and, uh, high five and people and trying to find a drink and in such a good atmosphere, everybody there is having a good time and P 
people that race against each other were, you know, there wasn't this competitive spirit. It's just all kind of hanging out. Right. I just remember walking through the suite and being like, who in the world is paying for this? Because it was, it was seriously like out of a movie. There was several bedrooms. There was like a different dining area with this really nice, like huge dining table that you'd see, you know, in some mansion, there was an outdoor pool that went out like it extended on its own balcony. The pool did, uh, you know, a huge living area where it would the main area where most of the people were hanging out, but it was, I've never been in anything like that before. So I, I can't even imagine what it costs just to rent that room for the weekend, let alone, you know, all the, the alcohol and things that were going on in there. So I remember everybody was having a good time. Uh, I was hanging out with Chad and Ellie and everybody was, it was all good. And then all of a sudden I kind of hear a commotion out on the, the outdoor deck area where the, that pool was and these idiots. And I, I won't name who they were because there's no reason to, but they're throwing beer bottles. We're on the 40th floor, by the way, I didn't mention that 40th floor. They're throwing beer bottles from the 40th floor into the parking lot and just exploding them onto cars in the parking lot. Right. And, and I'm sure these guys are drunk and just idiotic, but I'm like, this isn't going to go well, this isn't going to last long. So I'm kind of making a contingency plan, uh, to try not to go to jail or get kicked out. Well, yeah, you know, less than five minutes later, there are security and cops at the front door, you know, yelling at everyone because that's, that's not going to go well. You can't throw beer bottles in a parking lot. And, uh, they start kicking everybody out and it's pretty late by this point when this was going on, you know, by you think about the main event ends by at 10 45 or 11, we were down on the podium celebrating till after 11. By the time we got to our hotels and showered and everything, we probably didn't even get to this party till between 12 and one at the earliest. So it's two or three, you know, easily. So they start kicking everybody out, which is not a huge deal. Uh, most people probably wanted to go gamble and whatever anyway. Well, I remember I was in um, I th- somewhere where I didn't get kicked out. Like I, I missed the fray of everybody just getting shuffled out the door. I don't know if I was making a drink or just somehow I, I avoided all that. So I'm one of the only people left in this room when everybody get, gets kicked out. And I really didn't even mean to. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. I could have been talking to a girl or who knows, but I remember still being in there. And then it was like when that all, they all left, uh, a different type of party began and I'm trying to not name names in this thing, but there were some serious things going on in that room, uh, after that left, um, (laughs) uh, drugs, escorts. I mean, stuff that I wanted nothing to do with. And I, like my eyes were like a cartoon character, like what in the hell is going on now? So I remember my last memory and I was, I was fading fast, but my last memory was one of the people there taking me to this other just normal hotel room and be like, Hey, you, you can stay in here and crash whatever I was. And I was super thankful for that. And God only knows what went on in that suite after I left, because yeah, I, I wanted no part of any of the things going on in there. This wasn't my scene. So 
I remember waking up the next morning and I was definitely hung over and it was probably, I don't know, 10, 11 noon, maybe, I don't know. But I wake up and I have all my clothes on, even my shoes on, which I'm thankful for because I didn't do anything stupid. And, but I, I don't have, well, first, I don't know where I'm at, right? I have to like put the pieces together and we've all been there, put the pieces together of what happened. How did I get in this room? Where am, where is this room? What hotel am I in? But I didn't have a phone. I didn't have any money. I didn't have my wallet. I didn't have anything other than what was just on my person, which was just clothes. So I walk out of the room, kind of look both directions and I'm trying to put the pieces together. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. The suite that they're in is down this way. So I walk down there and the doors open, which was, I'm thankful for that. I go in and, and J-Law and Ryan Mills are in there, uh, laying on the couches and they have my phone and they're just prank calling random people. I, I don't even think they knew whose phone they had. It, I just left it in that room. And so they had gone through and texted and prank called all these people I know. And I'm getting texts and calls back from these people pissed off. Right. And I'm like, so I'm apologizing the rest of the day to all these people that they called and you know, they're just cussing at them and genuinely or generally just causing a scene, which, you know, that's kind of J-Law style, but, uh, got my phone back. I still had no wallet or no money. And you got to remember this is before Uber or Lyft or anything. Right. So I didn't have a way to get from the palms back to the hard rock. And I was in no condition probably to walk that far. And I didn't want to walk that far. So I call Chad and I'm just hoping to get a ride at this point. And he's like, Oh yeah. Hey, we have your, uh, Ellie has your phone and or your, your wallet and your money. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like first call I've, I, I have everything back. I got my phone and I'm going to have my money and my wallet back. And I had cash on me to gamble. So I'm assuming I gave it to Ellie for safekeeping because I couldn't be trusted at that point. So anyway, Chad's like, yeah, 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 we're, we're getting ready, um, to go to rehab. Uh, we'll come get you and then we'll go to, to rehab, which is where I was staying. And if you didn't know, or if you weren't around at the time, rehab was this huge party on the weekends at hard rock. And it was the place to be like period end of story. So, and I was staying there anyway. So that would give me a chance to go back, take a shower, regroup and go down to this, this rehab. So perfect. Um, so Chad and Ellie come pick me up and obviously we're just dying laughing at each other about the previous night and all the things that went on and me being such a moron, not even having my phone or money or even knowing where I was like just typical, you know, Chad making fun of me. That's just kind of how it always went. But, uh, yeah, we go to the hard rock on Sunday and, um, yeah, start drinking again immediately when we get there had a great time. And obviously all the riders and, uh, teams and everybody was there. And, and back in those days we had a banquet on Sunday night, so no one would really leave until Monday. So Sunday was really just good times at the pool, trying to recover. And then, you know, uh, ramping up for the banquet on Sunday night, which was, you know, a dressy affair. Everybody, you know, dressed to the nines and had a great time. It was either at the hard rock or at planet Hollywood. And, uh, yeah, it was always something we look forward to. And I had to go on stage to, uh, speak about, you know, my privateer bonus. And obviously the coronation of it was Chad winning the 250 supercross championship. So being around him and all that, it was a, that was a big moment and something we were all looking forward to. Um, you know, thinking back on that weekend, 
I have to feel like that was the beginning of the end for, for J law, as far as his racing career. When I think about the 08 season, you know, I stayed in California the month of January and I was riding in a track where he was at too. And he was training his ass off. Um, he was working with Rhino and Josh Hill was also on his program. And honestly, they were really working hard. Like who knows what he was doing when he wasn't riding. I'm sure they were having their fun too, but they were there every day. They would do their motos and then they would split. And I knew what I knew why they were leaving is because Rhino was going to go make them do bike rides and weight training and all these other things. Like they were super disciplined and I saw them day in and day out doing the work. That's where that championship came from is all of that work. He had the talent. He just had to apply himself. And we saw he, what he was capable of when he did. But when he won that championship and I saw the things he was doing just that night, Saturday night after the race and his attitude, I just didn't think it was sustainable. I kind of saw the road he was headed down. You add a, a ton of money and all these things into his personality. And I just didn't know how long he would be able to, to hold it together. And unfortunately we saw he only made it another year or so. And uh, man, it's unfortunate because that kid could ride like nobody's business. You know, he could challenge Dungy, He could challenge Villapoto and those guys, I don't want to say they feared him, but they certainly were worried about him. You know, he was constantly pestering them and could just straight up beat him a lot of the time. So, um, it's such a bittersweet memory for me because it was so much fun and it's just a, a memory I'll always remember and laugh about. But at the same time, I think that was kind of the beginning or, or in the midst of where J law's career started to go sideways. So anyway, good times back then. Luckily everyone survived that weekend. Um, I saw things that I'll, I'll never forget. I, I mean, honestly, the that hotel room after everybody got kicked out and I was somehow still in there was straight out of Scarface. Like I'm not kidding. Everything that you would associate with Scarface other than people getting shot was going down in that hotel room. Uh, a lot of illegal activity and I'm glad I got the hell out of there, but I looked like they were having fun anyway. So enough about that, but crazy times. Um, you know, the sport was just kind of different back then. You know, the nineties had their fun. I think the, you know, 08 season was one of those times too, where guys were having a lot of fun as well. Um, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to live through it and come out the other side. Okay. So hope you enjoyed that. Um, there's probably, I'm not going to say probably, there is a lot to that story that I really just, I don't want to name names and get people in trouble or embarrass them or, yeah, there's just a lot of implications there that I don't want to touch, but trust me when I tell you that that party was the wildest thing I've ever been a part of. And, uh, I wish I, I wish I had more flexibility to, to share more details, but yeah, I just, I don't want to implicate anybody in anything that they certainly didn't say okay to. So let's get into some of these, uh, these email questions. Um, first one is from Jason Bigelow. He said, currently the average age of the 450 class is 27 and a half. It seems like average age of racers retiring in the past has been 28 or 29. Now I'm guessing that he just did his own research to, to average that out, which that's cool. 
Uh, he says if that continues to hold true within the next few years, there will be more racers retiring than there will be moving up. What's your thoughts on that? To be honest, I think you're going to see that average age escalate. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Now, some of the guys that have been retiring, you're looking at Ryan Villapoto, Ryan Dungey. Um, some of the greats of the sport have been stepping away early. Um, I think they kind of burned themselves out and financially they didn't have to race anymore. That that's a big factor. Now, if you look at guys like Chad Reed and Justin Brayton, you look at Zach Osborne's progress, you know, he's turning 30. Uh, some of these guys are getting older. Marvin Muscan is getting older. So I think those guys are going to be around for a little bit. And as they race into their early thirties, they're going to drag that average age up. So the short answer is I think you're going to see the average age go up, not down. And we won't necessarily need a ton of guys moving up, even though we will get those, you know, guys like Chase Sexton and some of these guys will move up Justin Cooper in a couple of years. I think you're going to see guys sticking around longer than maybe we have in the past um, with the kind of acceleration or I should say improvement of uh, what we know in fitness and supplements and nutrition. I think guys are able to race longer and be stronger into their thirties and they can adjust their, their training and adjust their calendar and maybe race a little bit less, but they can race longer and make, make more out of their career. Now we will see some guys still retire early. My opinion, and I have no evidence of this, but my opinion is that we're going to see Eli Tomac retire in the next 18 to 24 months. That's what I believe will happen. I think especially if he wins the Supercross championship, there won't be a lot for him left to prove. I don't think financially that he'll need the money anymore. You know, he's got a kid on the way and priorities start to shift. So I could absolutely see him stepping away at the end of next season, which is when his contract ends. So keep an eye on that. But I think you're going to see guys pushing into their early thirties, just trying to maximize it. And I think a lot of these guys love racing. So uh, that's a long answer to your question, um, but I don't think we're going to be or have a shortage of 450 guys. Another question is he says he he runs Lucas Oil in his YZ125, and it's set up for the woods and single track, but he's thinking about switching to Blenzol, which I highly recommend, uh, but he's not sure what type. Uh, so I did a little bit of research on my end, and what I would recommend is number 460 Green Label. Now, this is what kind of put Blenzol on the map. It works with all fuel types. So if you're running race gas or pump gas or methanol or whatever, it will, it will work with all of that. And it's just kind of their tried and true formula. So, uh, it, it's the highest concentration of castor in any of their, uh, any of their blends. So try blends all, um, there's nothing wrong with Lucas oil. I obviously they're a sponsor of the, the motocross series and, and Western power sports sells their stuff as well. I've actually been to the Lucas mansion in Indiana, but if you're thinking of making the switch to Blenzol, I would recommend number 460 Green Label. Now, Dustin Davis asks, why do the MXGP races go all over the world instead of staying in one country like we do here? Well, you're kind of talking about two different things. So, you know, the MXGP series has always prided themselves in being a world championship. Okay. So to truly be a world championship, they go all over. They have flyaway races in the South Pacific. They have uh, a lot of races in Europe, obviously. They used to come to the U.S., but that's been a really difficult proposition financially. 
Uh, but they really spread the series around. Obviously last year was the first foray into China, which I went, I went to that race. Uh, they're scheduled to go back to China this year. I, I don't know if they will or not. We'll see. They go to Russia. Uh, they go all over, right. And, and they, it, it costs them a lot of money to do this. It's really difficult on the budget for teams to accomplish this, but it's a big part of being a world championship. Now, comparatively in size, if you take America and you just place it on top of Europe, it dwarfs all of it, right? It, it goes from the other side of England all the way to, you know, Greece and, uh, parts of Northern Africa. It, it America is just a much larger, uh, place to have races and have riders from and attract talent from. So two different things, but America is really a national championship and always has been. But I think if you look at the history of the sport, most riders and whether it's Jean-Michel Bale or it's Roger DeCoster, or if it's Ken Roxon, Grant Langston, any, take your pick, right? Sebastian Tortelli. A lot of times those guys want to come race in America. And I think a big part of that is the draw of Supercross, but it's also financially until recently. And it may still be true. And in most cases, the American market will support, you know, the highest salaries. So if you are Sebastian Tortelli, and I've talked to him about this personally, when he left Europe, his salary jumped by like tenfold to come to America, to come ride for, for factory Honda. And there's just so much more money. Grant Langston was the same way. You know, he won his 125 world championship and moved to America and made an incredible amount more immediately just by coming stateside. So that's a big draw. And then also I think, you know, historically just a television package, which I'll give credit to, uh, you know, Ustream and, and the MXGP series, I guess it's in front now for really raising the level of their game worldwide to offer a better television package. But that's always been really the draw is, is just America has been seen as the premier series. And I, I think you're seeing an evening out of that, right? Guys like Jeffrey Hurlings and Tony Cairoli and Jorge Prado, they're choosing to stay home and stay in their native series instead of making the move over. And there's always going to be give and take with that. Some guys are going to come over and some guys are going to stay, but their series has become more financially viable. Uh, Jeffrey Hurling signed a huge contract and just renewed again with KTM. And from everything I've been told from people who would know, Jeffrey Hurlings was really the first rider to sign a contract that was on par with the highest contracts in America. That's never really happened. And I think they were kind of forced to do it. KTM was forced to do it because they were going to lose him to, uh, HRC Honda in Europe. But in the past, you know, that two, three, $4 million contract that the OEMs offer has really never kind of been there for the MXGP series. Uh, the highest numbers I I heard were around a million for a guy like Tony Cairoli. So uh, that certainly helps if they can continue to support that financially. They will have a much better chance of keeping their talent in their series versus them making the trip across the pond to to join the American series. So really good question there. Um, but you're just talking about two completely different dynamics. They want to be a world championship. This is the American national championship and always has been. And, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. We 
you know, as Amer- an American, we take a lot of pride in that series. So Zach asks, what, in my opinion, separates uh, incredibly talented riders like Kevin Windham from a Carmichael or Chad Reed um, or even a James Stewart? Is it a burning desire inside to win and be the best or is it hard work? So I think he's, he's trying to be careful about taking anything away from, from Wyndham, but you know, Wyndham never was able to cash in and win a premier series or, you know, supercross or outdoor, uh, a championship. So what made the difference, especially to a guy like Carmichael to me, um, I'm going to say it was the work. Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone put in the amount of work and effort and dedication, even if he whined about it the entire time that Ricky Carmichael did. And I've been around all of them. I've, I've been around Villapoto when he was on Eldon Baker's program and I've seen the work and it was a lot. It was, it was absolutely a lot. And I'm, I'm sure their programs, Carmichael's and Ryan Villapoto's were similar but even before Alden Baker was around, watching Ricky's riding and work ethic was not like anything I'd ever seen before. And I don't want you to think that Ricky was just, you know, Captain America, super motivated, like, I'm going to go riding and I'm so happy to be here. It, it wasn't that. You know, his mom was really instrumental in hammering home the fact that he needed to outwork everybody. And he would yell at her and they would argue and back and forth and bickering, but he would do the work and he would ride so much. I can't even tell you how much riding he would do. It would seriously blow you away. And he had this rotation. This is going back to like 99 and 2000, right around when Alden started to show up. And he had this rotation of myself, Matt Walker, Ernesto Fonseca, and a few others where he would basically rotate us in and out because it was all we could take. And we'd go ride for two or three days. And then we'd have to go home and regroup, rebuild the motorcycles, let our bodies heal. And then he would bring in someone else or Jeannie would bring in somebody else to ride with Ricky in those days. And he would just keep going where we would go back and just, I would go away on the floor for, you know, 24 or 48 hours and try to recover. And my dad would go, you know, rebuild, rebuild these motorcycles I had just destroyed he would just keep going day after day. And I'm talking like seven gallons of gas burned per day. And if, if you know how much riding that takes to burn seven gallons of gas through a two stroke, then you understand what I'm telling you. But to me, to answer the question, the work that Ricky Carmichael was willing to put in surpassed anybody I've ever seen or heard about. And I've heard some legendary stories about like Ryan Dungey and even Andrew Short, I, I know Andrew Short worked tirelessly. I've never seen anything like what Carmichael was able to do. And you, you know, what the difference was is if you factor in Carmichael's talent level, and don't don't let anybody ever tell you that Ricky Carmichael wasn't talented. That kid dominated from the time he was on a three wheeler until the day he retired. I mean, he he was always the best rider. I'm the same age as him. I grew up racing with him. And he killed us and beat us down every single weekend, our entire lives. And that never changed all the way through his career. He always beat everybody badly. So to me, he was kind of the ultimate in talent and hard work. 
And you saw once he finally figured out Supercross and figured out a way to beat Jeremy McGrath, you saw what happened, right? He just went on this run, wins 13 races in a row. And that was, he just figured it out. He finally was able to couple all that work with the talent and uh, his learning curve. But it was just always that way for him. And I'm sure Kevin Windham worked hard too. I have no doubt about it. There's no way you can be a podium guy and win races and do all the things he did win 125 supercross championships without working hard. Now I think it came easier to Kevin than most people. I don't think he had to work as hard for it as a lot of people did. Um, but to think he didn't do, you know, motos and, and 20 lap, you know, uh, main event practices and all that stuff that you have to do and go running and bicycle. Of course he did. I just don't think it was necessarily on the level and then just, I don't know another word for it than psychotic amount of work that Ricky Carmichael was willing to do. I, I think that's really what made the difference in the end. So next question, Nick, does fly plan on making a high end boot? And the answer to that is not right now. I don't want to say never because yeah, you never really know, but I can tell you, we don't have one in process and with Western power sports, being an Alpine Stars distributor, that's kind of our high-end uh, answer to boots, and as well as Garnet. So you have between you know an SG10 and SG12, an Alpine Stars Tech 10, and even a Tech 7. We have plenty of options to uh, to round that out. And honestly, we we really want to focus on doing what we feel we're good at to go out and create a boot that could compete on the market with, you know, some of our other competitors or our Western power sports partners that I just mentioned, Garnet and Alpine stars. You basically have to designate an entire team to do that. Uh, I have no illusions about the level of commitment that those brands, you know, they dedicate to creating a high end boot, you know, building a new tech 10 or building an SG 12, or, and I'll even say it, just building a Fox instinct that's a serious undertaking for those brands to do. And I don't want to downplay that. Uh, most of our resources right now and our engineering and all the things we're working on are, we're definitely trying to continue to elevate helmet safety be very forward with that. Um, the formula is obviously the first step of that process. And we're, we're hard at work developing what will come after the formula and how can we incorporate a lot of the concepts that we use in the formula into other products. And I really think that's what you'll see is how can we take everything we've learned and apply it to products that are, that are coming out and maybe products that we already have available. How can we update them with the, the best and brightest technology that's out there? So that's kind of where we're at. High level boots really not in the, uh, in the plans right now, but we do have a lot of plans. I can promise you on that. He also asks with uh, Smart Top, Bullfrog Spas, Moto Concept, Honda, that's a long title. Having a team sponsor of Liet, do you think they would sign Malcolm again next year considering he wears seven? So this was something we talked about privately a lot last year, myself and Steve Mathis and Jason Wygant. How's that going to work? Because <laughs> last year when Steve was at some of these races, let's say Geneva being a perfect example, uh, that team announced that they were going to wear Liet. 
And that's all well and good, right? Money in the sport and, and companies sponsoring teams, I'm all for it. Even if it's a competitor of mine that I, you know, battle daily, that's fine. I, I, it's part of the sport. So I was happy to see that team get, you know, funds uh, allocated to their team. Now, the question was, with Malcolm being one of the, if not the premier rider on that team, how is that going to affect him? Because we all know that he wears seven and that, you know, the one of the primary owners of that team is his brother, James Stewart. Well, you know, I, I, Mathis is just kind of poking and prodding Roger Larson, who is, you know, one of the main people over at seven and basically telling him, Oh, you're going to have to wear a You're going to, and, and Roger just kind of kept telling him, no, we'll be in seven. And, and they were just going back and forth. And, and obviously it was all in good fun, but I wondered personally and, and professionally how that was going to go. Right. Because, I would assume if you're one of the, the Liat marketing team, right. And, and this is very much in my business, uh, role, I would be wondering the same thing. If fly racing chose to sponsor that team, we would obviously want Malcolm Stewart to be a part of it. He's a, a likable guy. He's super fast. He's a marketing dream for most companies. So yeah, that would be a, a huge part of why we would want to sponsor that team is to have Malcolm Stewart in fly racing. So I wondered how that was going to go. And there was obviously a difference of opinion from people. And I I would assume there were some pretty difficult conversations because I can't imagine that Liet would be thrilled about that proposition, right? They're going to write, I would, I would assume significant, you know, uh, checks and, and, dedicate financial resources, both advertising and just straight payment to that team in exchange for promotion. But now you're going to lose arguably the the premier rider of the team. So that's a difficult conversation to have. And I would bet either it was either figured out before or some resources were rolled back or Leah was just basically like, we don't even know if we want to do this now. So I don't know. I wasn't a part of it. I'm 100% speculating and probably recklessly speculating, but I would bet it was difficult. In the end, we know that Malcolm chose to wear seven and he stuck to his guns and I can see why I I can appreciate his loyalty there. I would just bet it was a very sticky deal and uh, I don't think anything would change for uh, 2021. I think that, yes, I think that team, Bullfrogs Boss, Smart Top, Moto Concepts, Honda, loves having Malcolm Stewart on that team. And whatever was sorted out for 2020, I would assume would stay the same, right? Whatever concessions were made or whatever agreement they came to, I would bet you it stays the same because I just can't see Malcolm going away from it. Now, the one thing I would mention is I don't know what this industry is going to look like when we come out of this coronavirus. There are going to be some casualties of this virus business-wise. I do think you're going to see some companies, hopefully they stay in business and that's on a, on a global level, but I think a lot of marketing budgets are going to get minimized or reduced or completely erased. And that sucks. That sucks for our sport, but that's going to be reality because revenues are going to be down You're going to see skeleton crews managing brands and the amount of dollars they're going to be able to attribute to marketing are going to go way down. Um, So does that affect anything with that team? I don't know. 
Do they wear Lee in 2021? I have no idea how long their contract is. Does that affect anything with Malcolm Stewart? I don't know that either. So a lot of speculation and there, all of this could change with how this all looks on the backside of this coronavirus. When do we go racing again? I don't know. What brands are left standing? I don't know. Uh, so I'm, I'm purely speculating on the facts as we sit today, but all of that stuff could change. But a good question from Nick. So anyway, that's been industry seating for this week. I appreciate you all listening. A little bit shorter this week, but again, I'm trying to save some stories because I don't think we're going to go racing. Well, I should say we know we're not going to go racing for another six weeks minimum. And I don't want to run out of content to have here. So again, thank you to all the sponsors. Uh, it means the world to me that they have my back. And everybody that listens, you guys have really humbled me as far as the feedback I've been getting. And I really appreciate you all tuning in. And again, uh, I get to go to the office a little bit this week. I'm pumped about that. Uh, I'll be at home a lot also. But finally, it's warm enough to get out and ride a bicycle or ride my street bike. I need to get a dirt bike is what I need to do so I can go riding. But I um, appreciate it, and I will talk to you next week. See you. A Pulp MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X-Racer to Racer and Eye to Eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blends All, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing.